I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, Mark Curran relays more about the 1906 saga of Ed Johnson, the history that was being made, the miracles being performed, and the tragic turn of events that were unfolding. The jury came back at the end of the three-day trial and found Ed Johnson guilty in the rape of Nevada Taylor. At which point, the judge called all the lawyers in the chambers and he said the evidence is overwhelming, we all know he did it, and the judge said, I'm going to sentence him to death. Well, that's when the two lawyers, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, enter the story. The next day, they go into Hamilton County Criminal Court Division One, stand before Judge McReynolds, and they say, Your Honor, Noah Pardon stands up and says, Your Honor, I'm Noah Pardon. I'm here to file a motion for a new trial on behalf of my client, Ed Johnson. Well, three days later, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins did something that no lawyer in United States history had ever done in a state criminal case. They filed a federal habeas petition in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern Division of Tennessee. The U.S. District Court judge ruled, and what uh, Judge Clark said was it was clear to him that Ed Johnson had gotten, in his words, quote, a sham of a trial. And he said that Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins had clearly proven that Ed Johnson's federal constitutional rights had been denied. However, he said, he did not believe that he, as a U.S. District Court judge, had the authority, the jurisdiction, under the Habeas Corpus Act of 1871, that he didn't believe that he had the authority to grant a federal habeas corpus in this particular case, a state criminal case. So he denied the petition for habeas corpus, but he granted a 10-day appeal, stay of execution, to allow the lawyers to appeal to the Supreme Court. During these 10 days, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins had to solve one problem after another. First, the judge and the prosecutor agreed to ignore the federal court ruling publicly declaring that it was illegal and they planned to execute Johnson as scheduled. Then there was the sheriff. He said he had two conflicting orders, one to execute Johnson on March 13th that came from the state court judge, McReynolds, and then another from the federal judge to wait until March 23rd. And he complained in the newspapers that he didn't know which one to obey. So they all decided to leave it up to the governor. The governor's solution? reduced the day of execution by three days. But the lawyer's biggest hurdle was that neither man had ever had a case to go to the Supreme Court, so neither had a clue about its procedures. After quickly studying the court rules, they discovered that only someone who was a member of the Supreme Court bar could present a case before the court. And unfortunately, neither one of them was. But Stiles Hutchins did know one of those lawyers a black man named Emmanuel D.M. Hewlett, whom he had met in Atlanta in 1898 at a convention of black professionals. Hewlett was an 1877 graduate of Boston University School of Law and had practiced in Washington, D.C. since 1883. After what seemed like a lifetime, but was in reality only a few days, the two lawyers were ready. They decided that Noah Pardon would present the case, and on Thursday, March 15th, he got on a train headed to the United States Supreme Court. The next morning, he was ready to make the case. 
He goes to the Supreme Court. This is when the Supreme Court met in the old Senate chambers, the Capitol building. Pardon uh, was told to return the next day and to wait in case the court had any questions. And the Supreme Court had three rooms. They had the old Senate chambers as their courtroom. They had a conference room, which was adjacent to the courtroom. And they had a robing room on the back side of the courtroom. And Noah Pardon was told to wait in the robing room. And according to his own writings, he did. He waited all day long and late in the afternoon. Um, he could see people coming and going from the conference room. He didn't know how many justices were inside. Was there one? Were there nine? He didn't know. But finally, about 3.30 in the afternoon, he was told the court had questions to enter the conference room. And he walked in, and uh, it's a long conference room. There are no windows, chairs along the walls, uh, two tables together, uh, chandeliers overhead. This is where the Supreme Court held conference. Seated at the table was only one man. Uh, he was a large man, you know, like me. Uh, he, was, he, well, he was tall, though. He was six foot two, six foot three, weighed 280 pounds, hadn't missed many meals, like me. He was bald on top, but had flaming red hair on the side, and his name was John Marshall Harlan. And a little history as well. John Marshall Harlan, as some of you may know, was a pivotal figure in the 1896 case Plessy versus Ferguson. He wrote the only dissent in that landmark decision, in it, he said, The arbitrary separation of citizens on the basis of race while they are on a public highway is a badge of servitude inconsistent with freedom and equality. It cannot be justified upon any legal grounds. The thin disguise of equal accommodations will not mislead anyone. Our Constitution is colorblind, and it neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In my opinion, the judgment of this day will in time prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision in the Dred Scott case. And for the next 20 minutes, Noah Pardon tells Justice Harlan the story I've told you. At which point Justice Harlan cut him off. No, 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 I'm not here to retry this case. I don't want to hear the facts, what federal constitutional rights have been denied your client. And Noah Pardon goes into the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Due Process Clause arguments. And Justice Harlan cuts him off again. No, no, no. You don't want to make that argument. If it sounds as though Justice Harlan was a little, how can I say it, uh, a little fussy, well, that had a lot to do with his personality and his background. Uh, Justice Harlan was actually one of the most colorful characters in Supreme Court history. Um, he had uh, been a lawyer um, in Kentucky. Um, he had joined the Union Army, where he served as a colonel. Though uh, he was from Kentucky, so maybe everyone's a colonel. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, after the war, he ran for state attorney general. Uh, he ran as a pro-segregationist, by the way, and then he gets appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States, and he immediately makes a left-hand turn. He becomes a natural lawist. And of course, he issues the dissent in Plessy in 1896. The Constitution is colorblind. He issued many dissents. Um, Oliver, Wendell Sohome, Oliver Wendell Holmes said he suffered from dissentery, you know. <laughs> but Har Harlan says to Pardon, no, 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 you're not here to make that argument. What you would like to see this court do is declare that there is a right to a fair trial in state criminal cases under the Sixth Amendment. And Noah Pardon's like, ooh, that'd be great, you know. Um, <laughs> And Harlan's like, you know, but this court has repeatedly had the opportunity to go there, repeatedly had the chance, and repeatedly declined. Why now? Why this case? 
Um, and for the next 30 seconds, Pardon made his argument. And Harlan had heard enough and dismissed him. No words of encouragement. No, hey, I know your client's set to be executed in 72 hours. We'll take this up on an expedited matter. No recognition of the historic moment. Hey, you're the first lawyer of color to ever bring a case as lead counsel to the Supreme Court of the United States. No recognition at all. While Noah Pardon was busy making history, the Chattanooga newspaper was busy making mischief. The morning paper said that people here are anxious as to whether Johnson is to suffer death for his crime or escape because of the intervention by a court in Washington. On Sunday morning, March 16th, with his scheduled execution less than 48 hours away, Ed Johnson was in excellent spirits. He chatted with friends, reciting his Bible, and ate a breakfast of biscuits, gravy, and grits. He was not disturbed by the guards who gave him an hourly reminder about his date with the gallows, and he seemed oblivious to all of the local citizens who stopped by to visit him and have their picture taken with him. They were not his friends or his neighbors. In fact, Ed had never laid eyes on them. To them, the photographs were just souvenirs. Noah Pardon was now on a train headed back to Tennessee, sitting in the segregated passenger section, the custom that Plessy versus Ferguson sanctioned and John Marshall Harlem had condemned. Pardon began thinking about the case and mentally re-arguing it in his mind. He grabbed some stationery and began writing a letter. Pardon goes back to the train station. He writes this amazing letter to the Third Street Baptist Church of Philadelphia who had financially supported him through this. And uh, what he writes, what he wrote was this great letter. We did our best. You know, we advocated zealously. But I fear we have lost our case. He steps back off the train two days later in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there's his law partner. He's waving two pieces of paper, two documents. They're telegrams from Washington. The first is a one-page telegram, and it is the first ever stay of an execution in a state criminal case, and it's signed by Justice John Marshall Harlan. The second uh, document was a two-page superseding order. Six justices had signed a superseding order about three hours and 40 minutes after the original Justice Harlan order. The six justices and this second order, superseding order, was also authored by John Marshall Harlan. And in the second document, it also declared, it also said that they were staying Ed Johnson's execution. But the superseding order pointed out that Ed Johnson's life was in danger, noting the two prior lynching attempts and newspaper reports. And as such, the Supreme Court declared Ed Johnson a federal prisoner and ordered local authorities to protect him as a federal prisoner pending the outcome of the Supreme Court's decision. And finally, the Supreme Court ordered prosecution and defense to prepare for oral arguments before the Supreme Court within 30 days. Ed Johnson is now a federal prisoner, and the Supreme Court has ordered his protection, but instead of justice, lawlessness, and corruption, and vengeance pushed their way to the forefront of events, a combination that could only bring about a tragic end. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't go over too well back in Chattanooga. Uh, the next morning, the newspapers come out, and how dare the Supreme Court of the United States, these men in Washington, D.C., how dare they interfere with our state criminal case?
And the newspapers predicted that that night a lynch mob would come to the jail and correct what it called this horrible injustice imposed by the Supreme Court of the United States. And there was talk in the newspaper about lynching Pardon and Hutchins as well. Well, that night, several hundred men show up at the county jail. They've got guns and sledgehammers and axes. They're going to break into the jail. They're going to kill Ed Johnson. Well, you might think that surely there was this all but an invitation to a lynching that morning in the newspaper that the sheriff would have gotten Ed Johnson back on a train to Nashville or Knoxville, maybe down to Atlanta for safekeeping pending the Supreme Court order. But he hadn't. He'd left him there. Or there was a Supreme Court order declaring Ed Johnson a federal prisoner that maybe the sheriff would have beefed up security. Normally there would be four or five deputies on duty at the county jail at night, maybe double it or triple it, call in the National Guard. Instead, Sheriff Ship actually gave all of his deputies the night off except one. He left one deputy on duty. His name was Jeremiah Gibson. He was 72 years old. All the women about 4.30 in the afternoon were taken out of the county jail and moved to the work farm on the outskirts of town. The Hamilton County Jail, uh, which sits on the side of the ridge in downtown Chattanooga, is three stories. The top story is actually the third story. The top floor is the entry-level floor. The sheriff and the deputies took all the other inmates except one and packed them into the cells on the first and second floors underground. Left only one inmate on the entry-level floor, and that was Ed Johnson. Leaders of the mob were told if you get there, There'll be an elderly deputy, he has a key, don't do any property damage to the jail. The lynch mob shows up and of course the deputy sees them coming, flees for his life. The lynch mob races into the, into the jail and starts beating away at the big iron lock protecting Ed Johnson in his cell. Meanwhile across town there's a Baptist minister, the Reverend Jones of the First Baptist Church of Chattanooga. He hears there's a lynching attempt so what does he do? He races to the city police chief, separate from the sheriff, and he says, Chief, grab your men. There's a lynching attempt at the jail. we got to go stop it. And the police chief told the reverend, No, I'm under instructions from the sheriff to not get involved tonight. The minister, completely confused, remembered that the National Guard was on maneuvers down by the Tennessee River. And so what did he do? He realized if he could get into the roof of the courthouse, he could ring the alarm bell, and that would call the National Guard. Maybe call in some deputies, help stop the lynching. So he races past the jail, right next door to the courthouse, goes up three flights of stairs at the courthouse, and who does he run into? Judge McReynolds. The judge says, Reverend, what's going on? Oh, there's a lynching attempt right across the street. We need to ring the alarm bell. We've got to call the National Guard. We've got to stop it. And the judge responds, well, that's a great idea, but have you been to the jail yet? Maybe Sheriff Ship is already there. Maybe he's got things under control. The Reverend said, no, he hadn't been there yet. So the judge says, let's go downstairs. You go across the street, see if he's there. I'll hold the door open for you. If he's not there, come back. We'll ring the alarm bell together. We'll call the National Guard together. We'll stop the lynching together. The Reverend agrees. They go down three flights of stairs. The judge holds the door open. According to the Reverend's testimony later, he makes his way through the courtyard of the county jail. He said scores of people were celebrating, they were drinking, they were taking photos of each other. He called it like a celebration. He made his way through the crowd into the courthouse, and he saw men taking turns beating away at the big iron lock protecting Ed Johnson in his cell. No sheriffship. He finally made his way back outside, through the courtyard, through the people, over across the street to the courthouse. And what does he find? The doors to the courthouse have now been locked shut. He can no longer get inside. 
A little more than three hours after the attack on the jail began, that big iron lock finally gave way. They took Ed Johnson out of the jail. They walked him six blocks from the county jail to the county bridge, the Walnut Street Bridge. They took him out to the second span of the bridge. They put a noose around his neck and they said, Ed Johnson, there's nothing you can do that will save your life. You might as well confess. And Ed Johnson's last words, which are on his tombstone to this very day, were, God bless you all. I am an innocent man. That sent the crowd into a fury. His body was lifted to about 15 feet off the ground. His body hanging by the neck with a rope for about three and a half minutes. Apparently he wasn't dying fast enough and they opened fire. And the reports were that he was shot more than 50 times. One of the bullets finally pierced the rope from which his body was hanging. His body fell to the wooden planks of the bridge. And the media report said that a deputy sheriff walked up, reloaded his pistol and shot Ed Johnson five more times. The deputy sheriff then pinned a note into Ed Johnson's chest, a note later admitted into evidence. The note said to Justice Harlan and the Supreme Court, here's your Negro now, try to save him. More than 200 men and women filled the sanctuary of the Primitive Baptist Church. Skinbone Johnson greeted people at the door. The funeral service lasted for one hour and 53 days after he was arrested for the rape of Nevada Taylor, Ed Johnson's lynched and bullet-riddled body lay in a shallow grave. Noah Pardon, who had invested his entire soul in the case, wrote in the black newspaper, justice for Ed Johnson and the Negro as a people has been denied. Let us now seek punishment against those who have violated the laws of our state and our country. Pardon had no way of knowing, but at that exact moment, that was the same thought John Marshall Harlan and the other justices of the United States Supreme Court had. They learned of the lynching the morning after it occurred. The New York Times reported that the event has no parallel in the history of the court and has shocked its members beyond anything that has ever happened in their experience on the bench. Quickly, the court began to put in motion its plans. The immediate question, how to deal with those who had not only ignored their order, but who had defied it. They wanted it clearly understood that supreme meant supreme. the next Hidden Legal Figures. We as lawyers have extraordinary influence in our communities. The things we can do to help make this society, this world a better place, even the little things, is extraordinary. That and more will be part of our next episode. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast.
In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.